<laughs> so, um, so we're in a series, for those of you who are, have never been in the room before, we're in a series where we, we're preaching through the book of Galatians, and we're kind of getting towards the end of it, and we're in Galatians 5. Um, so if you've got a Bible, you want to turn to Galatians 5, if you don't, don't worry, it's going to come up on the screen. And um, I'm going to read the passage, and then uh, I'll talk you through it, and um, I think God will... There's this wonderful promise in Isaiah where it says, his word does not return empty. So I think we can just come expectant that as we look at this passage together, God wants to speak to us individually, collectively. I believe God wants to do a work. So we're not going through the motions. We're just going to ask God to come and he's going to come and honor his word, I think. But this is what it says. Galatians 5 verse 22. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. That's just a great start. Right? That's the call. If you're a Christian here, the call on you is to be free, not bound, not caught, not held back, not in slavery. The call is actually the trajectory is freedom. That's what should be our experience. OK, so say like you're called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, this is his answer, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. So it's, and you know, you can keep going. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But, this is the counterbalance, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. Um, I probably have asked this question before in church, and maybe even used this illustration, but I don't know if you've ever taught a child to ride a bike. Yeah, some of us have had that experience. Typically, so in the UK where Sarah and I are from, when they're learning to ride a bike, often they have little wheels called stabilizers. Is that, do you have this? Yeah, most of us have that experience. So you have these little wheels that you tie onto the wheels at the back and it kind of makes it into this kind of four-wheeled little thing. And the stabilizers give the wheels, you know, the child some balance. Without the stabilizers, there's no balance, there's no speed, there's no real freedom. But it's, and it's kind of cycling, but not really cycling. Yeah, it's pretty slow. It's, it, you know, it's not very agile, it's, but it's kind of like a step. But you don't want to stay on stabilizers your whole life. You know, as you grow up into being an adult and you want to cycle somewhere, generally you don't see too many adults cycling their bike still with stabilizers on. You know, you're not going to win the Tour de France, I suspect. I don't think Team whatever, I know Team Sky doesn't exist anymore, but, you know, I don't think many of those teams have any of their kind of riders with the really fast bikes with little stabilizers Generally, they've kind of grown out of that. They've taken them off. So if you want to cycle, you have to take the stabilizers off. But for any parent, there is quite a scary moment when you go, okay, 
Let's try it without the stabilizers. Let's try it without me holding the saddle anymore because I'm tired of running behind the bike holding the saddle. We're going to take the stabilizers off and we're going to see how you go. And if you're clever, you'll do it on grass. Because the scary thing about you take the stabilizers off, your, the, the question and the fear you have is, what is to stop this child from simply falling over, crashing into people, going all over the place? What's, if we take the stabilizers off, what's going to happen? And in one sense, that's the kind of question Paul is addressing in Galatians all the time. Because the background to Galatians is Judaizers have turned up and they said, yeah, it's great that you believe in Jesus. But actually, what you really need is you need some additional things. Okay, you've come to faith, that's good, but really to live this out fully, to be fully accepted, to really grow into who God wants you to be, to be able to do this properly, you need some additional things. Let's put some stabilizers on you. And that will stop you from just living a crazy life. We need some rules. We need an external code to hem you in and make sure your behavior is appropriate. So we will guard your behavior. We will stop you from living a life that you shouldn't live by giving you some rules. We'll put some stabilizers on you. Effectively, if you really believe that, what you're saying is the blood of Jesus, the cross of Jesus, faith in Jesus is not sufficient for me. That's what Paul is saying. That actually sounds a bit like the gospel, but actually, Paul says in Galatians, it's no gospel at all. Because what you're believing is, okay, the blood of Jesus, the cross of Jesus, what we focused on in communion, is sufficient to get you into the kingdom, but it's not sufficient to keep you in the kingdom. Right? That's if you believe, I need some rules, you're saying, it's enough to get me in, but the blood of Jesus is not enough to keep me in. Because if I don't have some stabilizers, if I don't have some rules, I'm going to go crazy. I might just kind of go off into anything. I'll end up doing anything. There's nothing stopping me from falling over and crashing. And Paul's saying that's just not the gospel. What Paul is teaching in Galatians is that faith in Jesus is enough to get you in and it's enough to keep you in. Or for a more theological phrase, for those of you who like that, the same faith that justifies is the same faith that sanctifies and that's where all the controversy comes. Now, don't hear me wrong. What I'm not saying is there's no place in the Christian life for, for works, that we're not supposed to do good works. Ephesians 2 is a famous passage that says that we were predestined in advance to do good works. The difference is those works are never to qualify us for salvation or to qualify us for anything. They are always the evidence of something. They are the fruit of something that God's already done in our lives. So... It's incredibly liberating in one sense, what Paul is teaching in Galatians, but actually it's very scary at the same time, which is why lots of Christians have a bit of a mixed reaction to Galatians, because we kind of go, is he really saying that? Is he really saying, take the stabilizers off? Is he really saying there are no rules in the sense that you have to follow to control your behavior? Is that what he's really saying? Well, yes, he is saying that. I think that's exactly what he's saying. He's saying that if you put yourself under the law, under a way of trying to control your behavior by an external code, he said, it's like putting yourself under a curse. If, because you're saying the blood of Jesus is not sufficient to produce sanctification in me, but it's also saying that I, you know, I need something to prop me up. I need something to keep me going. So it's liberating, but terrifying. And the big question is, well, then how, how do we live a life worthy of the calling if we don't have rules that we have to follow? How do we stop ourselves from going a bit crazy and going off the rails? How, how do we, that's the big question. In other words, if we take the stabilizers off, what's to stop us from just falling over and crashing as Christians? 
And, and Galatians 5 is the answer to that question. Okay? Galatians, he's been building up and building up and building up. Because that's the question they're all asking. Really? No law? If we take the law away, really? What's going to happen? And Galatians 5 is the answer. And what Paul says, the answer is not the law. The answer is the spirit. The external code of the law has been replaced by an inner life of the spirit. And he's saying the inner life of the spirit will produce in you a righteousness that surpasses what the law ever asked of you. So Paul is not teaching, hey, become a Christian and then go off and do whatever you like. No, 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 not at all. Actually, Paul and Jesus raised the bar in terms of an ethical behavior. But he's saying the way you get there is not by an external code that controls your behavior, because that's death. It's like coming under a curse. It doesn't produce righteousness. It produces a judgmental, critical heart that's like, I'm never good enough. The way you get to a more righteous life, he says, is the Spirit of God comes to live in you and produces righteousness from the inside out. So when you see a child suddenly cycle, I remember we took our eldest Jacob to learn how to ride his bike. I mean, he was 18, to be fair, but no, no, no he was about four at the time, okay? And I remember we, we, had, we kind of took the stabilizers off. He'd been on a bit of a balanced bike, and we unleashed him. It was like, he was off. I mean, it felt like he could have done it a year before, two years before, because what the stabilizers had done, now he internally knew how to do himself. Something was working from the inside out in him, which meant that he could balance. And that is the kind of cycling you want. And that's why Paul goes, do you know what? You're, you're meant for freedom. <laughs> you know, you, if you become a Christian, you're born for freedom to get free of these things. You want to be able to cycle with speed and pace and balance, and you want to go. And you want to have distance. And that's what the kind of thing he's talking about here. Actually, through the Spirit, you get to live a life with far more pace, freedom, distance than you would ever do by trying to construct a life with all the stabilizers on. So Paul's answer, Galatians 5, is it's life in the Spirit is the thing. Okay? In fact, I would argue they need to, not just Galatians 5, virtually, probably every letter he writes in the New Testament is flooded with this idea that you don't get to live out a Christian life without the help of the Spirit. Okay? The Spirit is the key in terms of how we live a life worthy of the calling. Now, for some of us, that's a little uncomfortable because our church background, the Holy Spirit is not a person that has been mentioned very much, right? So I grew up in a church where we sang songs, hymns. I don't remember the Holy Spirit ever being mentioned. Occasionally, he would turn up in a hymn under the name of the Holy Ghost, which as a child was always a bit of a scary, weird concept that there was this like ghost-like figure you know, I, I thought of ghosts as cartoons. So they tended to have a white sheet on them. There's this weird white sheeted guy who turns up on a hymn occasionally, but he wasn't a present reality. It was just this weird reference to the Holy Ghost. What is that all about? Okay, but that was it. Okay, no explanation, no teaching. It's as if he'd been edited out of the story. But yet you read the New Testament and he is everywhere in the story. Jesus goes, it's better than I go. I'm going to send you another. I mean, Jesus himself says, it's better that he comes. And obviously Pentecost is like the pouring out of the Spirit, not now as in the Old Testament on particular people at particular places and particular times. Now on all flesh, which is the fulfillment of the prophecy in Joel 2, now coming to live within believers on the inside out. He says, it's much better. And you read the New Testament and he is everywhere. Okay. So for those of us who have come from maybe a background where we go, well, uh, 
I don't know, like, I kind of get it, but I'm a little uncomfortable. That's not my history. Well, that wasn't my history either. But if you go back into the Bible, you go, oh, it's thoroughly biblical. Okay? And just interestingly, I'll take you to one passage. Just have a little what it says in Romans 8. Because when we talk about the Spirit or the Holy Spirit, and Paul is talking about him, who are we actually talking about? Well, this is what it says. You, this is just one verse, you could find lots of You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, in other words, we're encased in a body which is dying, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. In other words, when he talks about the Spirit, he's talking about Jesus. You have Christ in you, you live in the realm of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God, Paul says, and he also says he's the Spirit of Christ. In other words, we're talking about Jesus' presence amongst us when we talk about the Holy Spirit. Okay? So the Holy Spirit is the real deal. We can trust him. We can allow him to take the stabilizers off. And the Spirit's role, ultimately, is to grow us into being more and more like Jesus. That's his aim. That's his whole point. Paul writes just a chapter earlier in Galatians 4, that he is in the pains of childbirth for the Galatians until Christ is formed in them. So that is what the Spirit wants to do. He wants, to, he wants us to be transformed and our lives to be transformed and our characters to be transformed to look more and more like Jesus. And so in Galatians 5, when Paul says, the answer is not the law, the answer is the Spirit, and then he talks about the fruit of the Spirit, what he is describing are characteristics where he is growing you to look more and more like Jesus. Okay? So, four things I want to just uh, say about the fruit of the Spirit. And there's lots of things we could say, but four things. Here's the first one. Galatians 5, I believe, in the list in Galatians 5, and I think there's nine, I think there's nine characteristics there, I think. I can't quite remember. I think Paul is writing an examples rather than an exhaustive list of the fruits of the Spirit. Okay, Sometimes we read the Bible, particularly those of us from a Western background, we le- read it quite forensically. Right? We kind of go, right, so there's that one and that one and that one. I think I have that one. I don't know if I have that one. I'm good on that one. I'm a good. And we kind of go, have you got this one? Love and kindness. And, and we kind of, that's the fruit of the Spirit. It's like an inventory if you've ever rented a house. It's like, there we go. Those are the fruits of the Spirit. But I don't think that's Paul is writing this at all. He's writing examples of characteristics that the Spirit of God wants to grow within us. It's not, in other words, it's not like a shopping list. You know, here are the 10 things, or here are the nine things you need, okay? Sometimes when we go shopping, occasionally I go shopping, and I have these slightly painful experiences where if I know the supermarket, it's fine. If I don't, I spend hours walking up and down the same aisle looking for things, asking people I don't know. And then Sarah goes, actually, we do need this. And it's like, oh, no, we've missed out a few other fruits of the Spirit. It's not a shopping list. Paul's just going, "Here's, here's here's an example. So he's not producing, here's the definitive list. And you, you can kind of get that vibe. If you read the rest of the New Testament, he keeps mentioning the Spirit and mentioning other parts of the roles that the Spirit plays. So Galatians 5, verse 5, so just before, he says, this, through the Spirit, we experience hope. So part of the Spirit's work in us is it produces hope in us. Colossians 3, Paul gives a very, um, very kind of closely related list to Galatians 5. 
a list of qualities that we grow into, but not all of them are quite the same. So Colossians 3 says this, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. And he goes on, put on love, which binds all these together. So there he doesn't use the language of fruit, but some of the fruits of the Spirit are in that list. <laughs> there he uses the picture of clothe yourself. But some of them are in them. Some are, so compassion's there. That's not in Galatians 5. But uh, kindness is there, and gentleness is there, and patience is there. So what he's doing is he's saying, look, the Spirit produces these things in our lives. And Galatians 5 is a list. And in fact, I think it's supposed to be like a description or, or an example. And I think the reason why he picks these ones is because of what he's just said. He's just said, here are some of the things the flesh produces in us. Now, here are some of the things the spirit produces. And they're meant to be, if you like, the balance, the answer to that. So you've got to read it in context. The flesh produces these things, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, etc. But the spirit produces these things, love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, etc. So he's contrasting the spirit and the flesh. It's a bit like the same if you read the New Testament, the, the gifts of the Spirit. There are two, three different places in the New Testament where the gifts of the Spirit are listed, and they're different. <laughs> Why are they different? Why, because he changed his mind? No. Was it the shopping list? I forgot that one. No, because they are examples of the gifts of the Spirit. Okay? So, it's not an exhaustive list. It's illustrative. It's, it's, uh, they're illustrations of what the Spirit does. Here's the next thing I want you to see. The, the fruit of the Spirit is for us, not just me personally. Again, if we're a Westerner here like me, you will tend to read this passage and go, so what do I have? This is about what God is doing in me. It's about love in me. It's about gentleness in me. It's about, yeah. And obviously that is true as well. Paul is saying, this is what God is doing in you and producing in you. But he's writing to a people and he's writing to a people about how they relate to one another. And he's talking about what's going on theologically. If you believe these things, this is what it's going to produce in your community. So when he's talking about the fruit of the Spirit, he's talking as much, if not more, about what the Spirit does amongst us and how we relate to one another as it is what he does just in me only. Obviously, the two are connected for that. So he's addressing a slightly different issue than often, if you're Western, or we read into it. So he says, Galatians 5, 14 to 15, he says, rather than biting and devouring one another, love one another. Okay? So he's, he's addressing how they relate. Galatians 6, verse 1, Paul speaks of the spirit of gentleness in connection with how to restore a brother or sister. Okay? So it is linked to how we are together as a community. And... If you know the New Testament at all, the New Testament is remarkably unprescriptive about ch how church needs to be done. Okay? Right. There's, there's not that many things that the New Testament tells you that when you lead a church, this is what you have to do. And I think that's because uh, God knows that we need to produce church in different cultures and different generations. And therefore, it's going to look different in different places at different times, and it should do. But... It is very prescriptive when it comes to the nature and the culture and the tone of how we relate to one another. So how we do worship, 
how we do a building. <laughs> Not that we would necessarily choose to do a building quite like this, but how you present, you know, how you set it all up, whether you do food or not, that's not, that's not in the gospel. That's just changeable. It's just cultural. It's, but how we relate, the Bible is very prescriptive. And it says, actually, the way you relate should be marked by love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And I want to just pull out a couple of them, because obviously you could spend an entire, you know, term just talking about each of them on their own. But just two of them I want you to notice. I think it's really interesting that amongst what appears to be a list of ethical qualities, Paul says joy is to be one of your characteristics. Okay? And you ask, well, what do, we, what do we mean by joy? Do we mean kind of like religious joy, where you can't tell that there's any joy, it's just all on the inside? That kind of miserable Christian joy? I don't, <laughs> think that's, I don't think that's what he's talking about. I think he's talking about joy. And I can, I can tell you that because I, I've done loads and loads of theology. So and I, I think that's what he means when he says joy. I think he means joy. I think one of the marks of a Christian community should be joy. That doesn't mean that we live in unreality. It doesn't mean that there isn't difficulty. It doesn't mean there isn't suffering and challenge. It means that one of the qualities is joy. And what I think is great about that is actually the gospel is the answer to everybody's longings. And one of the big questions that everybody asks, even if they don't articulate it, is how can I live a fulfilled, contented, joyful life? And that is why they chase after everything. They will, we will try everything to try and get that. And Paul is going, right at the heart of the gospel is joy. The church should be characterized by joy. It should also be characterized, he says, by peace. Again, that's not living in unreality. That doesn't mean there isn't disagreement. That doesn't mean there aren't things to resolve. Sometimes people have to apologize to each other and forgive each other. That happens all the time. When you get close enough to people, you find out they have their thing, and so do you, right? And if, you, you know, if you're married here, you'd have found that out by now, I suspect, as well, okay? We all have some stuff to grow in. So it doesn't mean we live in reality that there's never any challenge or difficulty, but it says one of the characteristics is that there's a, it's a sense of peace and harmony that we keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace, which is what Paul says in Ephesians 4. Okay, third thing I want to say about the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit takes time. Paul is using that language very specifically and intentionally. He describes it as fruit. Okay, now we live in a world where we want things right now, don't we? We want it, we'll do anything to get things faster. We eat fast food, we cook microwave meals, we have drive-through restaurants, people go on speed dating, you can let's name it. It goes, it's, the, the, the idea is to do it faster and faster and faster. But fruit takes time. You know, if you buy a tree, even one that's like, you know, you know, you know fairly kind of like, you know, maybe a couple of meters tall, and you went out and if you have a garden, stuck it in a hole in the garden and watered it and then stood outside going, come on, show me your fruit. Not only will you look very odd to your neighbors, but you're going to be waiting there a long time. It takes a long time for fruit to appear. So Paul is saying, you know, I think he's a reason why he uses that word, because fruit takes time. But fruit is the trajectory for all Christians who walk by the Spirit. Okay? Jesus says in John 15, We've been chosen and appointed to bear fruit, fruit that will last. So if you're a Christian here, over your life is written the promise of fruit. Fruit that will last. In other words, it will matter. It will have purpose. Psalm 1 describes a person who loves the law 
And I would take that to mean someone who walks by the Spirit in New Testament terms, as someone who's like, pl- like a tree planted by the river or streams, who bears fruit in season, whose leaves do not wither. In season, there is fruitfulness. So we are to walk in the Spirit. It's interesting, he even uses the word walk. You know, walk is not normally connected with the idea of speed. Running is connected with the idea of speed or, you know, walking. It's this picture of day by day, moment by moment, normal moment by normal moment. Yeah? When you get up, when you get to work, or when you're looking after kids or whatever it is you're doing, walk by the Spirit. One foot after the next. And eventually, Paul is saying, the trajectory is fruitfulness. There is fruit growing. <laughs> Gordon Fee, who's written a, a great book uh, on Paul and the Spirit, says this. However much we may wish it otherwise, when we receive the Spirit conversion, divine perfection does not set in. You may have noticed that by now, I don't know. But divine infection does. I love that. We have been invaded by the living God himself in the person of his spirit whose goal is to infect us thoroughly with God's own likeness. So there's no perfection when you become a Christian. God takes us as we are. There's forgiveness, justification, all those moments. But you're not instantly transformed into this incredibly godly person. There's a process now where God grows that in you from the inside out. And he says, but there now is an infection in you. The spirit has come to infect you, uh, all of us. I just, I think that's such a great picture. He's, going to, he's invading you. And the idea is he's going to grow God's likeness inside of you. He says elsewhere, Gordon Fee describes it as the long obedience in the same direction. Yeah. If you've ever gone on a walk, you know, after an hour you think, man, we haven't gone very far. We walk up mountains with our kids. But if you do a whole day of that or two days or three days or a week of that, it's amazing how far you get. So, it takes time. <laughs> yeah. Well, sometimes it's amazing how far we get. Here's the fourth one and the last one, okay? We have a part to play. So, although Paul is saying, talking about, actually, well, what's the answer? If we're not going to have a law, if we're going to not have stabilizers that control our behavior, and the answer is the Spirit, although he's saying that the Spirit is the one who produces life in you, he is not saying, therefore, that you have no part to play that suddenly we get completely passive about the whole thing. Because actually, the New Testament, you'll see Paul saying, you know, I worked harder than all, but not me, but the grace of God. He'll talk about striving towards things, pressing towards. But at the same time, he says, it's a work of the Spirit. So we have a part to play, although it is still the work of the Spirit. It's not about being passive. In fact, the whole tone of the passage is about a struggle between the flesh, what the flesh wants and what the Spirit wants. So what is our role? Okay, if we are to walk with the Spirit, if we are to walk in step with the Spirit, if if we're going to allow the Spirit to produce fruit in our lives, what is our role? Well, we're going to talk about this properly next Sunday. But just in a real summary phrase, here's what I think our role. Our role is to position our lives in such a way as we give the Spirit full access to our hearts. Right? to position our lives in such a way that we give the Spirit of God full access to our lives. Some of you have heard me use this picture before, but 
there's a big difference between a rowing boat, a, a cruiser, like you know, a motorboat, and a sailing boat. And sometimes people will talk about Christianity as if we're all rowing. It's all about effort. It's all about we just got to like, you know, it's all about how hard we try. Okay. I don't think that's a New Testament picture of growth, actually. I think it's exhausting. But sometimes the flip side of it is you get this picture of like, it's like a, you know, on the, on the lake near where we live, you, you tend to get teenagers out on, I assume they're mum and dad's boats. I don't know. All I know is Sarah and I don't have one of these boats. We have paddle boards. But they're out on the boats, right? And they're just cruising around with the engines on. They're not like, there's no effort at all. They're just cruising. And sometimes people will teach about growth as if it's all cruising. It's just the spiritual. I don't think that's a New Testament picture either. I think a much better picture is a picture of a sailing boat. When you're a sailor, your job is to position the boat, position the sails, to catch the wind. All the power comes from the spirit, but we have a part to play. We position ourselves. We plant ourselves. Psalm 1, we plant ourselves somewhere. Our job is to do everything we can to know him, to walk with him, to be close to him. And the question is, how do you do that? So I'll give you my views on that next Sunday. So that's the cliffhanger. <laughs> but I have some questions for you. And maybe you want to write these down. And then Sock, maybe you could just come and let's, uh, let's just finish with maybe a song just to respond. So here's a question for you. You might want to write it down. You might want to write it on your phone. What is it that you do that when you do that thing, you feel close to God? What is it that when you do that, faith starts to rise in your heart, especially? Yeah, so I'll give you a little idea. For a long time when we lived in London, rather than going to the church office immediately, I would stop on the way to the office on Wednesday mornings. I would go to McDonald's because they sold cheap coffee, but not bad coffee. And I would sit in the corner of McDonald's away from all the staff in our church for about an hour and a half. And I would read some really good Christian material. And it was like, even in McDonald's, I could feel faith rising in my heart. It was like, oh, it's like I could breathe. Fast food. Yeah? No, it wasn't actually fast food. But, but what is it you do that helps you feel faith rise? Where do you go physically? And when you go there, you feel more alive to God. And who is it that God has brought into your life that when you are with them, you feel stirred, you feel provoked, you feel inspired to want to follow Jesus more closely, right? Those are the kind of questions you want to ask. If, I'm, if Paul is right and the answer is, I need to walk by the Spirit, I want to keep in step with the Spirit, how do I do that? Well, one of the ways is to be able to answer the questions. Where is it I go where I feel more alive? What is it when I do it, I feel close to Jesus? Who is it when I'm with them, I feel inspired, provoked, challenged, encouraged, to be a follower of Jesus. It's one of the reasons why church is so important. It's one of the reasons why groups are so important. It's why, one of the reasons why fellowship and Christian friendships are so important. Not only having those, but having those. Because they are all ways in which we walk by the Spirit. So I'm going to close there. I think Sock's going to help lead us. And then Sarah, maybe you can come help close.